A warning before we begin, this week's episode contains a discussion about childhood sexual violence. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. She's one of the most influential voices of our time. Human beings are more alike than we are unalike. It's a voice that's spoken to millions. An activist and thinker. People are afraid to be pried loose from their ignorance because they know their ignorance so well, they know it better than they know their body odors. And a prolific writer, performer, and poet. When you want truth, the same way you wanted that breath of air, you've already got it. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Making Maya Angelou. I'm Brandon Poe. Today, Maya Angelou is one of the most famous and celebrated minds of the 20th century. Her seminal autobiography, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, is one of the most lauded American literary works of all time. Yet, she's a woman who defies category. It's in the reach of my arms, the span of my hips, the stride of my step, the curl of my lips. I'm a woman. Joining us is Rita Coburn, who directed and produced the Peabody Award-winning documentary about Maya Angelou and Still I Rise. Maya Angelou speaks to us even now. Dr. Randall Jelks, professor of African and African-American studies at the University of Kansas. It's about the resiliency. She asks all of us to be resilient. And a legend in her own right, Dr. Maxine Mims, a longtime friend of Dr. Angelo, 95 years young, and the founder of the Tacoma campus of Evergreen State College. To talk about her is extremely emotional and touching for me. Right now, this moment, is she's right here with us. What shaped her life? How did Maya Angelo become Maya Angelo? Keep the melody in your mind and in your spirit. It will keep you tender in the tough time. That's today on Making. Maya Angelou has lived dozens of lives. Her first one began in 1928. Her father was Bailey Johnson, a World War I veteran and a doorman at a swanky Los Angeles hotel. Her mother, Vivian Baxter, was from St. Louis, smart and independent. But together, Angelo called the couple matches and gasoline. My mother abandoned me and my brother when I was three and my brother was five. Burdened by the responsibility of parenting, her mom and dad put Angelo and her brother on a train alone. They tacked notes to their bodies with their final destination, Stamps, Arkansas where they eventually found their grandmother. We lived with our grandmother and uncle in the rear of the store. Her grandmother owned a general store. Her uncle Willie homeschooled her, teaching her multiplication tables. But the family suffered many indignities. Whenever the clan would ride into the black area, all black men had to hide. Angelo recalls Klansmen on horseback surrounding the store. She helped hide Uncle Willie, who was disabled, inside a produce bin. My brother and I 
would take potatoes and onions out of the bin, and my uncle would take his stick and laboriously get down into the bin. And my brother and I would cover him with potatoes and onions. And he would lie there all night. I was born the same year as Dr. Angelo, and my birthday is March 4th, and hers is April 4th. So I'm a month older than Dr. Angelo. This is Dr. Maxine Mims, renowned educator and friend of Maya Angelo. And during that period of time, we all knew we had a curfew. In my hometown, we had what is called a quarter to nine whistle that would blow, and that meant all Black people needed to be off the street at that time. And I'm pretty sure it was in stamps also. I think I want to speak to the terror that Dr. Maxine Mims, being born in that same year, 1928. Documentarian Rita Coburn. Maya Angelou, being born in that year, the absolute terror that Black children, women, and men, as with Uncle Willie, had to go through on a regular basis, leaves us with a low-grade traumatic stress syndrome. So before you get to a mother like Vivian Baxter and a father, what I think we have to realize is the way those people reacted in society was a direct result of that stress syndrome. So while her mother and her father may have abandoned her, the stress that they were under to have a child and still have a relationship in a society that was so hateful set the tone for that. And I think that as difficult as it was to be abandoned by Vivian Baxter, thank God for Grandmother Henderson. I believe that that abandonment hurt her deeply. It's like almost being adopted. You wonder, why did anybody give me away? But you also get to the point, somebody took me. And that was Grandmother Henderson. Just to give a context, uh, throughout the 1920s, uh, the Klan was not just in Arkansas or other parts of the South, but was like a national party. Dr. Randall Jelks of the University of Kansas. So the 1920s saw the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. And it's a fact that uh, the extended family for Black people was so important in these uh this, this time. Um, and children were taken in everywhere uh, because the, the Great Depression left so many people destitute, and particularly poor Black people in both cities and in the rural countryside. You never know who your family was going to be and who was going to take care of you. And so, you know, we got cousins in our family who are not blood, but they're cousins and they aunties <laughs> yeah. and their uncles. Speaking of extended family, uh, did Dr. Angelo ever kind of delve into the importance of family to her and how she felt about this idea of what family is? Maya Angelo would always say that her birth family was very small because basically it was her and her brother Bailey. And there was at one point where she could count her entire family and it was 13 people. 
So she expanded family to what she called community so that she could embrace other people who cared for her and whom she cared for. Because as Dr. Mims and Professor Jeltz makes the case, the historical Black community had to expand. You had to take care of whosoever children were there. If a slave master sold somebody, those kids had to be taken care of. We come from a long tradition of gathering in and making sure that no one was out of doors. We didn't have the word homeless. It was we make sure that you're not out of doors. And so she would open her home in that way. And she made family and she made community. And she loved that way. And I think that even her abandonment caused her to open her heart to so many people. And she opened her heart to us. And it's also a biblical idea. She studied the Bible and she was studying before she passed. In 2014, she was studying to become a minister. (laughs) And this is the biblical idea to that, that all things work to the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And so even though something bad happened and plenty bad happened, she transferred that to it must work to my good. Right. I'm called right. according to that purpose. This is going to work to my good. And I'm sure the turning of it was painful, but she would turn it and let it work to her good. And she would say, I'm going, if she was in pain walking down the hall and you looked at her too long, she said, stop looking at me. I'm going from strength to strength. Yeah. You remember that, doctor? Yeah. I'm going from strength to strength. And you know, her main word was courage the courage to love, the courage to walk, the courage to move. She did not allow the negative to take over at all. Not at all. Never. She didn't even allow negative conversation at her gathering. She'd tell you to be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> she put you out. She put you out. She would put you out of her house. She would put you out of her house. Were you there when she put that person out that made that joke? I was there when all of the people were put out. How did it happen, Dr. Mims? I don't want to. Oh. (laughs) And I tell you. Hey, listen, Rita, you have permission. Somebody made a joke about something she didn't like, and she said, get your purse. Wow. No, you get out, because you don't bring that in my house. You don't about people like that in my house. No negativity. She wouldn't have it. She wouldn't have None. it. None. And the thing, I, it's just not at the Thanksgiving dinner. It's in her personal relationships. It's even when you're just sitting, having lunch or dinner with her, you just could not have anything about another person in her presence. When she was seven years old, Angelo and her brother moved back in with her mother in St. Louis. The reunion was telling. Angelo said she knew immediately why her mother had sent her away. She danced, played jazz records, wore lipstick. She was too beautiful to have children, Angelo wrote later. Meanwhile, her mother's boyfriend was obsessive and controlling. When I was seven and a half, 
I was raped. I won't say severely raped. All rape is severe. Angelo identified the rapist to her brother, who then told the rest of the family. A few days later, her mother's boyfriend was arrested, released from jail, and then found beaten to death. I thought that I had caused the man's death because I had spoken his name. That was my seven-and-a-half-year-old logic. So I stopped talking for five years. Rape on the body of a young person, more often than not, introduces cynicism. And there is nothing quite so tragic as a young cynic because it means the person has gone from knowing nothing to believing nothing. Angelo and her brother moved back to Stamps, Arkansas. She'd later say her years of being mute saved her. She didn't speak. Instead, she read. I memorized Shakespeare, whole plays. I memorized Edgar Allan Poe. I had Longfellow. I had Guy de Maupassant. I had Balzac. And I was able to draw from human thought, human disappointments and triumphs, enough to triumph myself. When I decided to speak, I had a lot to say. Okay, so we heard Dr. Angelo say there that rape on the body of a young person leads to cynicism. Uh, Dr. Mims, can you talk to us a bit about how Dr. Angelo escaped that sense of cynicism at such a young age? By doing what she did, she became mute. She shut up. And when the voice came back, look at what the voice did to the world. She expresses that she read. So what happened was at seven years old, between seven and 12, think about those books. She gave herself a college education because I know people who can't pronounce Gita Mopassan now. And, and would not have read it. And she had whole play, Shakespeare, Poe. She had it. So once you've memorized it, it's like reading. You get the phonetics, you get the memory, you put the words together, the sentence, the comprehension. She was able to educate herself in a way that was beyond many people with PhDs from seven to 12. Yes, she might've been missing some components, but what happened in those years was that she educated herself and she educated herself to the point where she could sit with presidents and kings and queens and told to toe them because she had it in that wonderful brain that just did nothing after that, but it spanned. So uh, 12 years old is the age of uh, that many societies you become an adult. And she's taking information in and distilling it. And in those uh, moments of silence, obviously she became a listener, right? And finally, when she does speak, uh, one of the things that uh, I note about The Cage Bird, her first memoir, is that the great oral tradition that Black people possessed. It was a family virtue to speak in church, to recite the Bible on Easter Sunday, and it, it was a 
at least in my family, a matter of pride. BYP. That's right. If you didn't do your part right, it was it was a whole family family issues. But it, in that moment, she also was listening. She took the word very seriously. From that early trauma and that early learning, she went on to do so much. She moved to Oakland. She became the first black woman conductor on San Francisco's cable cars. She got pregnant at 16 with her only son and then moved to L.A., New York, Hawaii, Cleveland. She danced on stage, sang calypso music. She was cast in a major musical, had several marriages and divorces, some that led her to live in Cairo and Ghana. She was really well-traveled, and she did all of this before the age of 40. I look at her, and I think the experience of Ghana, and I think the experience of mothering, period, are huge aspects in her life. My heart goes out to any 16-year-old that gets pregnant the first time that they have sex and makes the decision to have the child and to become a mother who was not mothered the way she wanted to be. And she did not want to be her mother or father. She did not want to abandon her only son. And there's no relationship with the father. And there she is. And then she has the opportunity to dance, the opportunity to be in the Blacks, the opportunity to go to Ghana. Should she not do anything and stay and try to mother alone? It's not, can I have it all? It's, can I be a person? that has more than one layer. Can you see me as a Black girl? Can you see me as a pregnant Black girl standing outside of the United Nations watching people go in? Can you see me become a person who could speak seven languages and one day be in there? Can I see me as more than this baby in my belly, in my arms, And I still have all of these desires in my heart. Who can I be? And I think that she becomes Maya Angelou for us because she was able to be more than one dimensional. In the 1950s, Dr. Angelou was known by her stage name, Miss Calypso. She auditioned for a role in Porgy and Bess, the groundbreaking George Gershwin opera that brought America's racial divide to the stage. Angelo got the part, and it took her on a 22-nation tour. On a stop in Morocco, the company was asked to sing each song in concert. Now, Angela's part didn't have a solo, so the conductor asked her if she knew any spirituals to sing. Angelo tells the story in Rita Coburn's documentary, and still I rise. We went to church every all the time. And at all those meetings, we sang. So I told the man, yes, I know a spiritual. So I stood on the stage alone and sang. I am a poor pilgrim of sorrow. I'm lost in this wide world alone. I sang her song, and when I finished, 4,500 Arabs jumped up and hit the floor and started to shout, And I looked stage right at the wings where the singers had sung, and they were looking at me like, so I said, I'm sorry. I mean, you sang 
Puccini and Bach and Beethoven and Haydn. And I sang what W.B. Du Bois called the sorrow songs. Songs written not by free and easy people, not by a leisure class. Songs written from the heart, written with their blood, written with the whips and the lash on their back. When I sung these songs, the people couldn't stop screaming. Then I began to think, ah, I see. Now I see when the people were passing out the big packets of land and money, my people had none of that to give me. But what they gave me, look at what they gave me. My Lord, look at what they gave me. It opens doors for me all over the world. It's a great blessing. I think that at every juncture in her life, and we never know when junctures in our lives are going to come up, because she rose to the occasion and the moment, if it was rape, if it was abandonment, she could own her pain. And because she owned her pain, a little girl could read about the taboo of incest or rape and not understand it. And yet when it comes back years later and there's a context to put it in, understand that a woman defied book bans and said, this happened to me. And still I rise. And so gave permission to people to say, I was sexually abused and then I used my sex at a point to make money and I'm still here and I talk with kings and queens. You can do it. It doesn't matter what you ate for dinner yesterday. It's who you are today. It's who you choose to be today. And that's what she kept saying to us. And it was very empowering for Black people, and it was very empowering for women, and therefore, it was empowering for everybody. And she was talking to the part of you that you don't want to tell anybody about. She said, I did it so that the people could understand that even if the rest of the society looked down at them, they could gather together in my name, gather together, let's let's tell it. And I remember once she said there were two women behind her walking as she was walking back to her bus. And one woman said to the other one, why you like my Angelo so much? And the other one said, because she just tell the truth about it. She didn't been down real low and she didn't been up real high and she just tells the truth about it. And that's what helps to humanize her and us. More making in a minute. When I was three and Bailey four, we had arrived in the musty little town wearing tags on our wrists which instructed, to whom it may concern, that we were Marguerite and Bailey Johnson, Jr., from Long Beach, California, en route to Stamps, Arkansas. I know why the caged bird sings. That's the name of Maya Angelou's first autobiography. She wrote about her childhood, age 3 to age 16. She wrote about her decision to stop speaking, about her teenage pregnancy, and it affected millions of people, including a young Oprah Winfrey. 
and for the first time reading a story about someone who was like me. I was that girl who loved to read. I was that girl who was raised by my southern grandmother. I was that girl who was raped at nine. The book made her famous and beloved all around the world. It also launched a literary career that would span the next four and a half decades. I want to write so that the, the reader in Des Moines, Iowa, in Kowloon, China, in Cape Town, Pretoria, South Africa, in Harlem, in Boston. I want to write so that that reader can say, you know, that's the truth. That's the truth, yeah. I wasn't there and I wasn't a six foot tall black girl, but that's the truth, that's human. You know, 68 was a rough time for all of us. Dr. Maxine Mims. And uh, to go into 69 with these kinds of opportunities to experience the images of the language was rewarding. She gave us a gift at that time. And I think the more I sit here and think about it, she was constantly giving gifts through her literature, through her language. She was always making us know today is the day that you're being born again. The cage bird opened up doors for so many of us. I'm just thinking as I sit here that what she did for us, she gave us a gift of being in the cage. Through her autobiography, through her stories, through her imagination, and then allowed us to experience the techniques of rising. Well, 1968, as Dr. Mim said, was a difficult time for this country. Um, we had assassinations of our leaders. We also had a very verbal and evocative racial warfare going on. And we negated women in many of those aspects. Women were the last to the party for civil rights, the last to be acknowledged. There was also the racism that was happening to us along with sexism. So it's within that backdrop, not today's society, no new too wasn't happening. You were supposed to shut up. You definitely weren't supposed to tell people you were raped. The whole idea that you said somebody raped you and as a little child, children and people who have physical disabilities were not even thought of in 68. Right. So we have to contextualize that during this time period that Blacks were supposed to shut up and they were trying to speak, that women were negated and children weren't even thought of. She said, look at me. I was raped and I was raped in my own house. Now, people didn't, you know, that was something happened outside. I was raped in my own house. And look at me. And she turned the spotlight on herself and the crevices in the home and in the society and put it in a book. She wrote it down. She became noisy. She became noisy. Yeah, she helped us break collective silence. Yeah. And she did it in such a way that the rhythm 
the, the noise with the rhythm, you know, kept the tempo of who we are as a, as a, as a nation and as black people. You remember uh, priests and everybody, people were doing stuff, but nobody was telling. And a little black girl from Stamps, Arkansas said, Mm-mm, I'm going to tell it. And you're right, Dr. Mim, she became noisy. Yeah. And that's why they banned the book. Right. That's why they banned it. They did would rather you didn't read it than to know the truth. And the book, some places, is still banned. And it took those times for us to say she was telling the truth for some people. Some of us knew it immediately. Some of us knew it personally. Some of us were embarrassed. Why did she tell right. what happened in her family? She should have hushed, but she didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. We don't give uh, Dr. Angelou enough literary credit, right? I mean, she, she's a wonderful writer. And that's hard work. She puts a lot of hard work to get you to visualize, to understand. That story is so authentic that that narrative is so authentic and that it, it captures, you know, it captures me at a 14-year-old boy. And I have no, no experience of what she's going through, except that I'm a black young man with family and understanding the dynamics of urban culture and so forth. So it's a very powerful story. So giving giving her her due uh, and her literary credit because she's a writer. The thing that you've got to understand, this is a woman that is multi-talented. This is a dancer. So the book may have been written, yes, like we know traditionally. She's a singer. She's all of that. And she is teaching us how to integrate all of that into ourselves. So our image of ourselves would be expanded so that we can accept the fact that we are great. She's helped to remove us from the success, go to college, blah, blah, or go to finish high school and get a job. She says, no, that's not what it's about. Learn to have the courage to love and you'll be able to expand your images and include a lot of people in your circle. That's what she's offered us, and that's what it is. Dr. Angelo wrote seven autobiographies, and in 2014, she passed away. We asked our guest to reflect on her legacy. It's such a big question. Maya Angelou speaks to us even now in what Dr. Mim said. She created a rhythm. In her poetry, there's a dance, there's a song, there's a civil rights movement going on. In each word, she had the economy in the phrases that we know her from and still I rise or when we say it's in the bend of my wrists I'm a woman phenomenally you have presidents you have our first black Supreme Court justice you have people quoting her all over the place and she left that to us as a legacy the power of words you were going to have to come and show up for yourself. 
you're going to have to rise from within. And that is what she taught us. If you're a little girl over here, a little boy over there, this happened to you or this happened to you, you better rise from within. The Calvary is not coming to save you. There is no prince. You're not going to get a golden slipper. You're going to have to get up. You're going to have to ask God to help you and go inside yourself and excavate everything that you can and rise. Well, I mean, it's about the resiliency. Um, She asked all of us to be resilient. You know, uh, she was one of the few women to speak at the Million Man March. Uh, All of her life exemplified this kind of resiliency uh, that we have as been uh, eloquently stated already, uh, a positive legacy, a hopeful legacy, and so forth. To sit here uh, at this moment and see our experience, you and Rita and Randall, and to talk about her is extremely, really emotional and touching for me. This is who she is right now. This moment is she's right here with us. We're here. That's who it is. Maya is right here with us. She said, oh, they want to talk about me. Let me do something to help them. And here we are. The thrill this is Maya Angelou and I want to thank you from the bottom of This episode of Making was produced by Justin Bull and Hina Srivastava. I'm your host, Brandon Pope. Our executive producer is Brendan Benizek. Special thanks to the Dr. Maya Angelou Foundation. Thank you also to each of our guests, and be sure to check out Rita Coburn's Peabody Award-winning documentary, Maya Angelou and Still I Rise, on PBS. Also check out Letters to Martin, Meditations on Democracy in Black America by Randall Jelks. More episodes soon to come. Be sure to press the subscribe button and we'll see you soon.